you would think that it was like almost dying that would cause you to say this is rock bottom, but it wasn't that. It was the fact that I could not go to work for three days. I laid in my bed healing and recovering, and I felt so much shame about the state of my life and that I had been living this facade and that everything that I had built myself worth around, which is working hard, deep work ethic, being successful, it just came crashing down because I could not get out of bed. Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO podcast. I'm Richard Metcalf, founder of X Quadrant, and my mission is to help the world's top CEOs and entrepreneurs shift from incremental to exponential progress and create a huge positive impact on our world. Now, that requires you to reinvent yourself and transform your business. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. Kerry Siggins is on a mission to change the face of capitalism. No small task then. And what's more, she wants to do it in a very specific way. She's looking to create a billion dollar business, which is an objective shared by many CEOs. But in her case, she actually wants to create a thousand millionaires. A thousand million is a billion. So she's looking to create not just wealth, but distributed wealth of empowering uh, and enriching all of the employees in her business in a really special way. And uh, as we, as she goes on this journey, we discover that she's made some really counterintuitive choices along the way that are serving her really well. So without spoiling any more of the surprise, I invite you to listen in as I go deep with Kerry Siggins on how to create a thousand millionaires. Kerry, hi, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here, Richard. Yeah, I'm really glad too. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Let's dive straight into your journey. I know that when you were 28 years old, you had a bit of a crisis point in your life. You moved back home. It was a low point, right? Back in with the parents. And yet that moment became the start of a whole new adventure. And that's the adventure you're still on today with Stone Age Holdings. So perhaps just take us back to that point what was going on and and why did it become this pivotal moment? Yeah, it was it was probably the most pivotal inflection point in my life. Um, throughout my 20s, you know, for a lot of reasons that I didn't understand back then, but I do now because of all of the work and therapy and coaching I've put myself through, um, I developed um, addiction issues. In fact, I was um, what you would call a high-functioning addict. So I um, had substance abuse issues, but I was able to maintain a job. In fact, even grow in my career. But I had this, you know, this other side of myself that I hid from my employers that I that I really tried to hide from the rest of the world. Uh, so my motto was work hard, play hard. But it all came crashing down on on uh, Labor Day uh, of 2006, where I accidentally overdosed and. I lived, I don't know why or how, well, I should say, I don't know how, I know why now, uh, because I know I'm supposed to be here on this planet to make an impact, but, uh, but I shouldn't have something just shocked me alive. And you would think that it was like almost dying that would cause you to say, this is rock bottom, but it wasn't that it was the fact that I could not go to work for three days. I laid in my bed healing and recovering and I felt so much shame about the state of my life and that I had been living this facade and that 
everything that I had built myself worth around, which is working hard, deep work ethic, being successful, it just came crashing down because I could not get out of bed. And so I called my mom who lived in Durango, Colorado, small town, one the Western Slope, rural Colorado, where I grew up. And I told her everything. And I said, I needed to come home. And she said, yes. But she said two conditions. One, no drugs in the house. And two, you have to figure out how to lead yourself. You have so much potential and you can create this different life for yourself, but you need to figure out why you're doing what you're doing and lead yourself so that you can lead others. And so I came home at 28 years old and it was the, it was, it put me on this path to forever change my life. So amazing story. So you, you were at that rock bottom place, you came home. So then, um, so fast forward, you ended up uh, coming into this this very small company, I think at the time, Stone Age Holdings, and then you started to build that out, right? Is, um, tell us a bit about Stone Age. And uh, it, it sounds like you've done pivot after pivot in this business. So tell us about just the, the main phases of that journey over the last few years. Yeah, pivoting is the story of my life. Um, sometimes I maybe even pivot too fast. But uh, but yeah, so I um, when I got to Durango, it's a small town and I didn't know what I was going to do. So I started applying for jobs and Stone Age was looking for a general manager. The two founders um, started the company in 1979 and they had got it to the point where they wanted to take it to. They were in their mid fifties and they knew that they needed that next level of leadership. And so they didn't know my story then. Um, they know it now, of course, but what they saw was potential and drive and I was a good cultural fit and they wanted something different with their company. They had other candidates who were traditional, um, I would say more traditional, you know, men uh, in their 50s who had a lot of manufacturing experience, but they just said, you know what, let's give her a shot and see what happens. And at that time, we were Stone Age tools. Um, we manufacture high-pressure water blasting equipment. So think squirt guns on steroids that go in and clean refineries and chemical plants, food processing plants, anywhere you'd use ultra-high-pressure water to clean. And they gave me a shot at figuring out how to become the leader that I knew I was. And so that was the start of it. And that was almost 17 years ago. Now I run Stone Age Holdings, which is the parent company of Stone Age Tools, uh, which is our high pressure water blasting group. We have a um, another company called uh, Warthog, which is our sewer cleaning nozzle. And then um, a IoT product development company, a company that helps our clients develop smart products. Um, called Breadware. And so we're building all of that out as we are pivoting from traditional manufacturing into becoming more of a technology company. So we can go into any of those details that you want, but you know, it's been this wild journey of making manual tools that you screw on the end of a hose that a guy puts his hands on and shoves down a pipe or into a tank to building out semi-automated equipment to robotic equipment, now smart equipment and software platforms. Um, that we've that we've really been um, we've really been transitioning to over the last decade. Well, there's a lot to go into there. So much. Let me take us take you back though to that moment when they said, "Yeah, let's give her a shot." She's not our usual profile, but let's give it a shot. How did you feel at that moment when you realized that you would be given the reins to this 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 company and that they were kind of banking on you? What's going on in your mind? Oh, a couple of things. One, I was so excited. I felt that I had been given a new lease on life. In fact, one of the founders who I reported to at the time, um, John Wolgamott, 
I remember sitting in his office. Uh, it was my first week there. And he's the age of my dad. I'm the age of his daughters uh, who didn't want anything to do with the business. And he said, young lady, I hope that you understand the opportunity that you've been given You know, in a very paternalistic uh, voice. And of course, he didn't know my story then, but I did know that this was this huge opportunity. I didn't understand what it was going to turn into, but I knew that it was something that was different. And I felt like I belonged. Even that first day walking in so nervous that I actually had no idea what I was doing and everybody in the company had way more experience and way more knowledge than me. I felt like I was home. So it was this mix of feeling really excited, really grateful, and completely scared that I had no clue what I was doing. Yeah, it was wild. <laughs> so uh, one of the reasons that we originally connected was because I know that you're a winner of one of the Real Leaders Impact Awards for this year. So just tell me a bit about how purpose and, uh, and broader impact has woven itself into into this journey, we can perhaps get into some of the transformations you've been doing, but you know, where did that come from, right? It sounds like you're about more than just the pure financials here. Yeah, uh, you know, I think one of the two things. First, from a personal leadership standpoint, having the opportunity to come in and run Stone Age and learn from our two founders and from all of my employees, especially those employees in that first um, in those first couple of years who gave me shot after shot when I didn't know what I was doing, I realized that there's so much joy and fulfillment when you help other people achieve their dreams, when you help them unleash their potential. And I didn't understand this was one of my gifts, but I'm, I ask really good questions and I can help people start to articulate what they want in their life. And then I can say, okay, here's how we're going to help make that happen. And you started to see these just unbelievable transformations within, uh, from my employees who, you know, took a risk and shared a dream with me or shared an issue with me and helping them work through it and helping them just do everything that they wanted to do in their lives. And so making this impact through leadership was really, was really fulfilling to me. And I wanted to do as much of it as I could. I wanted my employees to love their jobs as much as I did. So how do I help them achieve their potential and find meaning in their work? And so that's been this, you know, this leadership journey that I've been on throughout these 17 years that I've been running Stone Age. But the other piece of it is that we're an employee-owned company. And I believe so deeply in employee ownership and the benefits that can come to society, to uh, to communities, to our employees, because they get to share in the wealth building aspect of the company. They get to have more autonomy and say in their work uh, that I believe that we're changing the narrative of capitalism and that you know wealth concentration doesn't just have to happen at the top. It can if you think about sharing the wealth where that value is created. So these two things have kind of come together with how do you help people live their dreams? And and the model that we have through employee ownership allows people to do it from meaning, meaning at work and through financial means by being, getting to share in the wealth creation of the company. Wow. Yeah. I'm thinking about where to go here. Part of me is like, well, that sounds amazing, employee ownership, and it must be awesome. But let's go to the other side. So what makes it difficult, right? Why don't other people do it? And like, what it... Presumably, it's not a panacea for everything. 
So what are some of the challenges you've found as you've actually implemented that model? I mean, clearly, we can imagine, we can all imagine this world where everyone feels they've got total ownership, they're, they're invested in the success of the company, and they're going the extra mile as, as a result. But what are some of the kind of the ahas or gotchas that kind of came up along the way on that journey? Well, first and foremost, that not everybody wants that. You know, what, what comes with this, with thinking and acting like an owner is deep personal responsibility and accountability. It's the foundation for everything. It's you know what we call the own it mindset uh, at Stone Age. And I thought everybody would want to be part of it <laughs> because it's so amazing. And it was so fulfilling to me and to so many of our employees. And not everybody wants that. Some people just want a job and that's okay. That's totally fine. Um, but I took it personally and I would try to, you know, to convince people, sell people, help them turn it around. And what I've realized is that it's okay that people don't necessarily want to think and act like an owner, that they don't want to feel that deep level of personal responsibility at work. And so those people aren't a great fit for us at Stone Age. And so um, that was a big lesson that I had to learn is that you can't like force this on people that when it's just not part of what their vision is for themselves um, and and learning how to be okay with that. So let me ask you, what comes first, the kind of sense of ownership or the actual structural ownership? In other words, uh, yeah, do you kind of try to detect, are people ready to act like owners before giving them, you know, stock or whatever? Or is it more everyone gets it by default and then you're, you're looking for them to step up? Um, I think very few people get it by default. I do think that personal responsibility and accountability, like once you're an, a formed adult, if you do not have that, it's almost impossible to teach you how to have that. So we definitely look for those candidates that exhibit personal responsibility and accountability because if there's none, there's, in my opinion, no point in in trying to invest in in, in teaching them. How do you find that? What are the questions that you might uh, ask, you know, interviews, or how do you how do you hire to optimize for that? It's a question that comes up, you know, a lot working with clients. I even ran a program; I still run it now and again, called Ownership Accelerator, because ownership is such a big issue for people. But you're right; much better to hire at the start people who've already got that mindset. So, how do you kind of have to hire for that? Well, you know, like any like like anything, it's like baseball, right? You you never bat a, a thousand. Uh, so even though I think we ask good screening questions, sometimes it gets through because you know, people are on their first date on interviews. But we really try to dig in. So we have a pretty a comprehensive um, interviewing process. But I ask questions like, you know, really tell me about the biggest mistake that you've made and what you did to fix it. And if the answer has anything to do with somebody else, you know, well, somebody did this, uh, where there's like a deflection or a blame, then that's a big red flag to me. Uh, or if it's a relatively benign mistake, um, we've all, every single one of us have made huge mistakes in our, in our lives and our careers. And so I want that honest answer. Tell me about a time where you really damaged a relationship at work what happened? And I listen for those same types of things. And so we put people on the spot with being able to talk through how um, they've handled the mistakes that they've made. Then I ask a question like, when, when were you given responsibility to run a project or an initiative and you felt in over your head? What did you do? 
and so those answers are really telling um, with with how they lean into the challenges and and how they take responsibility. In my opinion, the opposite of responsibility isn't irresponsibility; it's blame. When you don't take responsibility for things that happen in your life, then you're blaming time, a situation, yourself, another person. And so I look for those types of answers to just get that foundation. Does this person have responsibility and accountability? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. What I often say is that yeah, we always have what I call the victim loop, which begins with when you have a situation, it begins with ignoring, blaming, or denying. And, um, and often it's about the idea that I didn't have something, right? I didn't have enough time. I didn't have support from marketing or operations. I didn't have a clear strategy from my senior management, blah, blah, blah. What we didn't have. And then the other loops I talk about is the ownership loop. It starts with owning it. What could I have done differently? But the key thing after owning is actually people think, well, then I need to learn. No, no, no. You need to forgive yourself and actually be okay with it. It's like, okay, fair point. I messed up. Well, what I could have done more. But if we feel terrible every time we go around that ownership loop, we don't want to do it anymore. It's too painful. So it's actually really important to, A, observe, but not beat ourselves up about it because then we're in a position to actually move forward. Yep, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Well, let's, let's kind of move back into this world of pivoting. So um, I think you said it was one of the hardest things you ever did right, moving from these manual water blasting tools, which sounds like my son would love to play with in the garden, um, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, high pressure manual tools to squid and friends with. But, uh, yeah, but you might hurt yourself. <laughs> you might hurt yourself, yeah, I get it, I get it, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but you move from that to this automated equipment, robotics, uh, IoT, all this stuff. Um, sounds a really tough transition. So tell me about how did you lead the company through that and what were the difficulties and, and what did you learn? Yeah. So there was, it was a really pivotal moment in our industry. There was a, a fatality that happened uh, at a plant in the southern part of the U.S. And uh, it was actually where a guy was manually shotgunning, much like what you would do like at a car washer with your pressure washer only with very high pressure, 40,000 PSI. And the hose shroud burst and it, and it went into his gut and it killed him a very horrible, horrible accident. And at that time, a lot of these big uh, multinational industrial facility owners, Dow Chemical, BASF, ExxonMobil, they said, that's it. We cannot have these types of fatalities. We have to move more towards automation. And we had been talking about doing it for a while, but um, it's just a whole different type of engineering than you know, mechanical engineering, um, you know, stainless steel into very specific nozzles um, that we were the best in the world at. Um, but we, we didn't want the industry to pass us by as there's this push for more automated solutions. So we made the decision that we were going to go that route. And um, we make tools for every application that's out there. There's pipe cleaning, there's tank cleaning, there's surface prep, which is like taking rust and paint off. There's tube cleaning and heat exchangers. Um, and we made a tool for every one of those applications. But it was all the same basic technology inside the, the tool. Well, we made the decision that we were going to build a piece of semi-automated equipment for every application. And that was a huge mistake. And it's because it's much more complicated equipment. And we should have gone deep instead of broad. Um, so that was a huge learning lesson for me that you can't employ the same strategy that's made you successful when you're making a big pivot to a new product line. And then the second piece of that was we sold through distribution. And 
distributors typically want a relatively easy product to sell. And here we're building equipment that no one has ever seen before or used before. And there's a significant investment of time and money to be able to resell this equipment. And our dealers just weren't successful. So then we decided that we needed to go direct in our most important markets. So over a four-year period, we did a massive shift in product development and we changed our go-to-market strategy and started selling direct in the US and in Europe, um, which are our two biggest markets, and changed our whole distribution model. We opened up offices. We opened up a whole rental business, which we had never done. So it just dramatically changed our business. And um, it was the hardest thing we've done, but also the most exciting. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to introduce you to two transformative programs that we run. The first is Rivendell, my exclusive group of top CEOs who are committed to transforming themselves, their businesses, and the world. It's an incredible peer group and a deep coaching experience that will push you to new heights, no matter how successful you've already been. The second is Impact Accelerator, a coaching program for executives who are ready to make a big leap forward in their own leadership. It's regularly described as life-changing and no other program provides such personal strategic clarity, a measurable shift in stakeholder perceptions and a world-class leadership development environment. Find out about both of these programs at xquadrant.com services. Now back to the conversation. It's interesting. You're the second person on the podcast that I can think of who's talked about this reverse out of distribution channels back into do-it-yourself sales. I think as Elizabeth from HG Insights had the same thing when she took over the company. She realized that actually the full value that they could add couldn't really be delivered via channel partners that weren't completely all in and like immersed in the product and everything else. And they had to actually simplify and scale back. It's the opposite of what most companies do. Most companies are looking for, you know, let's do less ourselves, get people to scale it for us. But what I'm hearing, yeah, and I've seen it in, in myself in the past, if partners are not so committed to this, and if it's something that's a bit out of the ordinary, yeah, it's hard, right? There's an education component, which they're not necessarily, haven't got the appetite to do. Um, was that a hard decision as a leader? Yeah, I mean, was, was that hard to actually back from those relationships that were very lucrative for them and for you for many years it must have been a yeah brutal brutal i mean i flew to every we did the us first and i wanted to tell every dealer face to face and so when we made this decision i flew i basically over three days four days i flew to every single dealer that we had in the us and told them face to face what we were doing and why uh, and so even though they were really angry, um, a lot of them were really angry with me. Most of them understood what I was, why I was doing it, even though they you know, didn't like it. There was nobody who could say that I didn't do it with integrity and honesty and that I faced everybody personally, you know, in their, in their office, in their city to, to, to have this conversation. And then a year later when we did Europe, I did the same thing. And so that's really tough. It was really emotional. Like a lot of these people, we had relationships before I had come to Stone Age. So it was a massive change. And I made a lot of people upset. And my personality is one where I want people to like me. <laughs> and uh, and so I really had to work through the fact that I made so many people upset. 
But I knew in my heart it was the right decision for us as a business. And it was 100% the right decision. I would go back and do a couple things differently now that I have hindsight as 2020 vision. But, uh, but it was the best decision I have made, even though I had to end some of those long-term relationships or, or change some of those long-term relationships. Yeah, what's coming up in my mind as you talk about this is I can totally understand, you know, admire the, the bravery and the kind of like we have to make this happen and, and doing the face-to-face -face conversations. Do you think there is a scenario in which if you had really laid out, this is what we require going forward for this to be successful and for people to accompany us? Do you think if you'd actually said like these are the new standards, would do you think any of those partners been able to kind of able and wanted to invest to actually come with you on the journey? Or do you think it was just going to be too complicated for anybody? Based on how I've seen things play out since we made this, this these decisions back in, in 2015, 16, I would say no, I don't think that they would have been able to make that gap because they've been trying to sell competitor products in the same way. And they're, they're just not successful. Of course, they're up against us as, you know, and I have the best sales team in the industry and best customer. We were just a great company to work with. And so it's hard to compete with us. But no, I don't think that they could have made this change. What I would have done differently is that I cut them out for everything, automated equipment and tools. And I would have still kept the tool distribution relationship, but I thought I had to have it all. I thought, you know, we needed to do all of this ourselves. And I think I could have done less damage and it would have been better for everybody if I would have been more selective in which products they each get to sell. So that's what I would have done differently if I could go back to that time and, and, and make a different decision. Well, so, yeah, thank you for being honest. And, and also, you know, credit to you for being bold and, and making the tough call, right? Actually making this thing happen. I've seen many companies kind of tolerate business models which are no longer serving people and ultimately customers. So uh, I think that's really interesting. Um, it's scary to be, make that kind of big change. So, and, you know, we were doing things we'd never had done before. We didn't have a cut the customer relationships. All of our dealers did. So we had to go develop all of those relationships. People always loved our products, but they didn't work directly with us. They worked through our dealers. So it was a huge risk and a big transition. Um, but one that's definitely paid off. Like we would not be where we are today in this transformation into a technology company if we wouldn't have made those that initial pivot with this type of, of semi-automated equipment and then changing our business model. So it was the right decision, even though it was really tough. It was a really tough couple of years to get through. Did you have a lot of internal resistance from employees or were they all on board from the start? It was mixed. Uh, I think some people saw it and I think some people were really scared. In fact, one of my employees, I just talked to him about this probably like six months ago. And he said, um, I completely disagreed with you when you made that decision to go direct. I thought, how are we going to do this without our dealers? I thought our sales were going to drop and that we were going to be in trouble. And now look at where we are. And we were talking this in context of profit or of uh, of the ESOP and the you know the, the the ESOP benefit that people have. I mean, we were creating real wealth within our company through the ESOP, which would not have happened if we wouldn't have made this step. And so it was really. 
um, I was just filled with joy that a person who was really skeptical and and didn't you know trust the decision and thought it was a mistake could come back and say it was totally the right decision and I was wrong and you know what what's really done is that it has allowed me to to trust you even if I don't necessarily understand the decisions that you're making. Um, it was a huge lesson for me that that maybe maybe you're seeing things that I'm not seeing and that. I need to do a better job of asking questions and being on board with what we're doing as a company because I'm an owner now. And so it was a really validating conversation, you know, all those years later to have with him when he was really skeptical of the decision. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Sometimes it just takes time for us to build this credibility with people, right? It takes, we want it to be immediate. It's not. It takes years. <laughs> so you've got a goal to yeah, yeah, exactly. It can take. Yeah, it's it's. We've always we're all playing the long game all the time. That's what I keep reminding you know myself in my, when I get into my short term like hit results whatever. It's always about the long game. So here's a question. I know you've got a goal to continue this transformation, and ultimately, I think you hit a billion dollar valuation. You know, it's it's fascinating. I've got several clients right now working with on that exact same thing, all of which are in different places, and it's a really interesting journey because it does involve this multiplicative aspect from from where they're starting from. And a billion, it's a nice round number, but I'm kind of curious as to, you know, apart from just being a big number and, you know, whatever, like, what is it important? Is the number important? What would it mean? Why set that as a goal? You know, is it that you need a bigger car at the moment or, you know, what's kind of going on? Nope, it has to do with uh, with creating a thousand millionaires. So our goal is to really transform um, the way that, that, at least in the United States, that we look at at capitalism. And so my goal is a thousand millionaires and a thousand millionaires is a billion. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not so much that it's that about that number. It's about the impact that we're going to have on our employee owners when we build real wealth within the company. And we have to do that in a way that brings value to our customers, but and we have got to do it in a way that brings value to our employees, that we still remain a great place to work even as we grow. So this, this message that, that I'm building within my team and within the company is that as we scale our business, we have to scale care. And that is caring about each other, caring about our employees. And I can't scale care. And my executive management team can't scale care. It has to be something that is fundamental about each one of us as employee owners. And so, uh, and that's how we're going to do this, how we're going to do this together, every single one of us within the company. And so it's this kind of combined thing of look at the value that we can, that we can create. We can change the world. We can solve really tough problems for our customers and we get to share in the success and you get to be part of this journey for changing the way you live, but also all the people who you work with, with they, with, with how they live. But we got to do it in a way that scales caring about each other, belonging, inclusion, being a great place to work. And so that's what our mission is, is to, to prove that it can be done. And so it's less about the, it's less about the billion. It's more about the thousand millionaires. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. That's such an, a very inspiring um, yeah, and, and, and ambitious goal, right? To, to do that and to actually become a also a, a case study, right? To shift perhaps a broader leadership conversation around around the country, around the world. So that's great. So let me ask you the, the, the key question then, the question I'd love to get to, which is how are you going to need to change to shift, stretch yourself to multiply your impact 
to see this multiplication effect happen and to create these thousand millionaires? What's going to need to change in the way that Kerry Siggins leads and operates? Ah, oh, this is what I think about all the time. Um, you know, it's a really interesting place to be because I think it's I think it's really tough for people to scale from an eight million dollar company to you know a billion dollar company, uh, and and a lot of leaders can't make that journey. Like there are some leaders who are great at running a hundred million dollar company or a two hundred fifty million dollar company, and and so. I know I have to scale my leadership to be able to be at the helm of this company through this transition. And, you know, sometimes I worry about that, right? We don't have necessarily have the experience on the team to be able to make this happen. And I don't know, I've never done this before. So, so as I'm looking to scale my leadership, the first thing that I'm really considering now is how do I build my team? How do I build the team to have the experience, the vision, the the hunger, the drive to be part of what we're doing uh, and who can help me bring in knowledge that I don't have, um, experience that I don't have so that we can do it, hopefully without making as many mistakes as we might <laughs> if uh, if it was just me. So surrounding myself with people uh, that are smarter, who have more experience, who can help me do it is the number one thing. The other thing that I'm working on, you know, I grew up in this company. I started when I was 28 years old. I'm 45. I'm going to be 45 here in a couple months. And um, and I have been so hands-on. Uh, every single department has reported to me. In fact, like individuals in departments have reported to me because if someone leaves or someone's not working out in a position, I'm always the person to go in and fix it. And, um, and that really has to transition. And people are used to me doing that. And because I think of my inspiring style, people look to that to be like the galvanizer. But I can't do that. You can't scale me being in the person in the meeting to be able to rally, rally the troops and get everybody excited and on board. And, and even though that's part of my job, and I want to do that at a high level, I really have to make sure that I'm playing the right role. And so that I feel fulfilled every day, being able to play to my strengths and my gifts and my talents and what the company needs, but also making sure that the company that we were that we fill that gap of me being such a hands on CEO, too. And so that takes a personal, you know, it takes a personal commitment to myself of, of how do I lead through that? When is the appropriate time to galvanize? And when is the appropriate time to, you know, really bring the team up and help them figure out how to do it without me? And so, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting transition that, that we're going through as a company as I kind of get further and further out of the company, you know, being okay with like letting go of control a little bit so that I can do what I want to do and help those other people grow. It's an uncomfortable place to be sometimes. And so, you know, I'm working through that discomfort. Yeah, I call it, it's reinventing your success formula, right? And we have to keep doing it time and time again on this journey. I'll put it to you, it's something to think about that what I heard is like being hands-on and being galvanizing kind of sound like they're a bit together in your world. But perhaps they don't have to be, right? Perhaps you can be galvanizing and not hands-on, and there might be two different things. So you, perhaps you can still bring a bit of that magic and also have some distance to be more creative and, and strategic in the way yeah. you work. Exactly. That is the trick. That is exactly the trick. Um, then it doesn't feel overwhelming because I'm not in solving a very specific problem, galvanizing around a very specific problem. It's more galvanizing around the vision, you know, the outcomes that we're looking for. And so, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. It just has to change the flavor of galvanizing. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's I see it all the time, right? Because people get to a really high level where you got to, and you've got this little success formula that works. And the question is, how do you get to this whole new realm? Because we keep banging up against this ceiling that we've created for ourselves because we know how to operate and add lots of value in this zone. And we're like, well, if I leave this, who's going to do this? Where's the void going to be? And what's it even going to be like? You know, am I going to add less value if I stop doing this thing here? And the answer is normally no. But there's a there's a courage factor, there's a boldness factor, and there's a reinvention I see it all the time, you know, in, in this, as I like to say, I say it all the time, on this exponential journey, behind us looks horizontal and ahead of us looks vertical, you know, because this is like yeah, but it's always felt like that actually in different places. We've always had to come across this. I love that. I love that. I love that. You know, and it's not just me too, it's my team getting used to it. Like I I just had one of my employees tell me yesterday. You know, you came in, I came in to help solve some really tough decisions that we were trying to make that the team just didn't feel comfortable making on their own. And so I stepped back in and, 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 and tried to help from a bigger perspective, not in the weeds. Um, but this particular employee said, Carrie, when you're in those meetings, so much better. And I said, I know, but we can't scale that. And so what I'm trying to do is teach you how to be comfortable with making these decisions. Because I'm okay even if you make the wrong decision. How you learn is maybe by making the wrong decision, and that's okay. And so he said, he said to me, he's like, I know, and I know that that's the future, but I like it the old way. And so, you know, it's not just about how I get to that next level of leadership. And, and for me, too, is how do I bring other people along for that journey? For those people who have been working for me for 17 years who like that, or who are like, you know, it just it doesn't feel the same. And I like the way it used to feel. So, you know, they're, they're a big part of that transition and that journey, too. Yeah, well, in, in my book, um, Making Time for Strategy, I, I talk about one of the key parts is influence. We'd often forget it. Um, and it applies because making time for strategy involves changing the way that we relate to people, the world around us, the tasks that we do. Um, and I always say you know, influence is important because if you want to go on a diet, it's your family that's likely to wave the chocolate cake <laughs> under your nose, right? Because they're used to it. They're comfortable with it, right? They're the saboteurs because they're used to they get comfortable right so you change they have to change and so for a leader there's no change without actually shifting the team's mindset and stakeholders mindset as well it's often overlooked yeah and you know what i told him i was like it's okay to grieve the past like we can do that that's what transitioning is always out there and i think a lot of times we leaders are like well just get on board this is changing and and we don't make time for people to to grieve like the way that it used to be so that they can be part of that. They can, they can feel part of that. They can go through the proper process to get on board. And so, you know, it was a really good conversation. I was like, fine, let's, let's talk about it. And so he told me how he felt and he was like, I feel a lot better now. And so like giving him that space to grieve it, even though it's like, we're never going back to that, right. We're only growing as a company. Um, but I think that he just appreciated the acknowledgement that it is different and that it isn't going to go back to the same way and that it's okay for him to feel that way. But, you know, how do I help support him be able to, you know, to get on board and to be part of the solution going forward when I'm not in, you know, part of developing that solution all the time. So it was a, it was a really powerful reminder that sometimes people just need acknowledgement. Like, I understand why you feel this way. You know, let's talk about it so that you can move forward. Yeah, perfect. Beautiful. So, Kerry, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you today. We've, we've covered a lot of ground. We've started, you know, you moving back home at 28. 
uh, getting this job, this amazing opportunity, uh, giving it a shot, uh, transforming the company. Uh, I'll see her several times, this huge journey dealing with the resistance, you know, some resistance, uh, you're making the bold moves with your distributors, talked about ownership, hiring, for how do we hire for ownership, talked about your mission to create a thousand million millionaires, um, talked about this question about how do we scale uh, the business, scale ourselves, get people to step up, not always be the galvanizing one. Uh, there's been a whole, you know, whole load of areas that we've looked at. So it's been a really fun conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing and following you al- along with you as you continue this journey to build this this billion dollar business uh, and and a thousand millionaires. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you or, or the company, find out more, where should they go and do that? Sure. So you can go to kerrysiggins.com. That's my personal website. Um, that has everything about me, my podcast, my book, a little bit about my leadership journey. Um, if you are interested in learning more about what Stone Age does, you can go to stoneageholdings.com and that will take you to all the different companies that we have. If you really want to learn about water blasting, go to Stone Age Tools and go to our YouTube channel and you can watch us blow stuff up with water, which is really, really cool. Um, and then if you want to follow me, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, that's my most active social media channel. And I would love to connect on LinkedIn. So you can just search Carrie Siggins and that's where you'll find me. Gary, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to uh, following along with you in the future. Thanks again. Thank you, Richard. Yep, absolutely. Well, that's a wrap. If you received value from this conversation, please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We deeply appreciate it. And if you'd like to check out the show notes from this episode, head to xquadrant.com slash podcast, where you'll find all the details. Now, finally, when you're in top leadership, who supports and challenges you at a deep level to help you multiply your impact? Discover more about the different ways we can support you at xquadrant.com.